we're going to look this morning in Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at someone who had some expectations about who Jesus would be and what Jesus would do. And it seems as though, like many of us, he had to come face to face with unmet expectations. And the Jesus that he encountered was not the Jesus that he had been expecting exactly. And the work that Jesus had done up until that point in his life was not what he expected Jesus to do up until that point in his life. And so he questioned Jesus. If you have a Bible, follow along. I'm going to begin reading in Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. The word of the Lord says this, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many whom were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? (coughs) A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So John the Baptist is in prison. We know that because Matthew chapter 11 tells us that he's in prison. And Matthew also tells us in Matthew chapter 14 that John is in prison for calling out the immorality of King Herod. 
And in prison, John's disciples report to him the things that Jesus has said, the things that Jesus has done. So John grabs two of his disciples and he sends them back to Jesus with the question that's recorded in the second part of verse 19. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now that's a really odd question if you know much about John the Baptist. It's an odd question because after all, John the Baptist has spent the majority of his adult life up until this point preparing the people for God's Messiah. You might remember from Luke chapter 1 that even before John's birth, an angel appeared to John's father, Zechariah, and told him that John would be born and that John would be great and that John would be the, the way preparer for the Messiah. That John would come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah and Zechariah the prophet, knowing the Old Testament prophecy from Malachi chapter 4, knew that right before God's Messiah came, there would be a forerunner. And Malachi the prophet, prophesying hundreds of years before, says that that prophet will be like the prophet Elijah. And the angel tells Zechariah, your son will come In the power of Elijah, he will come as the Elijah. And so John knew that he was the forerunner of the Messiah to come. He no doubt had known from his dad about the angel visit. He would have no doubt known from his mom about how he had jumped in her womb when she encountered Mary who was pregnant with baby Jesus. In fact, later, as an adult... John spent his time warning people that the Messiah was about to arrive. For example, when asked if John himself was the Messiah in Luke chapter 3, John answered and said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit fire his winnowing fork is in his hand to cleanse or to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire so john is asked hey are you the messiah and john says no i'm not the messiah i'm baptizing you with water but there's one who is to come who will baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire and then john goes on to declare the kind of work that Jesus would do. And he says, the winnowing fork is in his hand. In other words, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the faithful from the faithless. And the wheat he will gather into his barn, into his kingdom. But the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. John knew he was not the Messiah. He knew what the Messiah would be like, that he was preparing the way for this Messiah, and he knew something about the work that the Messiah would do. And then, when Jesus did arrive on the scene as an adult, ready for ministry, Matthew tells us that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. He came to John to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized. John said, no, I should be the one who's baptized by you, not me being the one baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus answered, let it be so, for this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. 
and when Jesus was baptized. Remember, John is baptizing Jesus. Matthew 3.16 tells us when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So John is there baptizing Jesus. Jesus comes out of the water. The heavens are open. The Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And a voice from heaven thunders, this is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. And John is there. And then later... Jesus approaches John. John is gathered with some of his disciples and he sees Jesus in the distance walking towards him. And the, the book of John chapter 1 tells us that John says to those around him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. And again, John, speaking to his own disciples, says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And so he recognizes his role in kind of preparing the way for the Messiah. And John continued talking to his disciples. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with water. So God the Father tells John, Hey, I'm going to send you to baptize with water, and you're going to know the Messiah because my spirit is going to descend and remain on him, and that's how you'll know that that's the Messiah. And John says in John 1.34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So what's the point? Why would I go back and share all that history about John the Baptist? The point is that John knew at least at one time, John knew who Jesus truly was. It doesn't get much more clear than John 1.34, when John says, I have seen and borne witness that this, referring to Jesus, is the Son of God. But now, some time has passed. And if John expected Jesus to initiate a revolt and to overthrow the Roman occupying forces, that hasn't happened yet. And if John was expecting Jesus to cleanse Judaism of its corrupt, hypocritical leaders, to separate the wheat from the chaff because the winnowing fork was in his hand, that hasn't happened yet. And if he expected Jesus to gather a massive following of influencers and power brokers to plot how they might take back their land, that hasn't happened yet. You see, John had expectations about the person and about the work of the Messiah. And those expectations in his own mind had not, it seems, come to fruition yet. Most of what John expected likely was yet to happen. 
There was a disconnect in John's eyes between what he expected and who Jesus really was. And John wasn't alone in those feelings. In fact, throughout the New Testament, you see people who are trying to come to grips with the Old Testament predictions about who the Messiah would be, about what he would be like. They had certain preconceived ideas based on the Old Testament prophecies. Okay, the Messiah is going to look like this. This is what he's going to do. This is going to be his work. And then when Jesus arrived on the scene, there seemed to be a disconnect in some of their minds between what they expected Jesus to be like and then Jesus' actual ministry in his first coming. For example, they knew that he would establish an eternal kingdom. That this kingdom would put to shame the greatest dynasties of the world. They knew that he would overthrow sin and death. They knew that he would gather together a people to himself, a people of changed hearts. They knew that after a period of judgment, he would establish a lasting and eternal peace. But thus far into Jesus' ministry, that simply had not happened yet. And as they looked at the ministry and the life of Jesus, what they saw was Jesus spending his time preaching good news of the gospel and healing the sick and raising the dead. And instead of growing in power and in growing his base of influencers and change makers, he seemed to hang out with sinners, the least and the last. And he seemed to be blissfully unaware that those around him had expectations that he would overthrow Rome and establish a new world dominance. And in fact, when his followers did want to resort to violence, it was Jesus who stopped them and said that they misunderstood his mission. So here is John. He's sitting in a prison He's incarcerated for speaking out against the evil of the king. And in fact, perhaps, the reason he spoke out against that evil was maybe to jumpstart or ignite some sort of revolt. But that didn't appear to be happening. And now he likely expected that his life would end soon. Perhaps in this very prison cell. And he gets an update about Jesus' ministry. So he sends two of his disciples with this question once again. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now there are a couple of ways that we could interpret this question of John. And I'll leave it to you to study and look at the biblical data and try to make the best, the best answer there. But we could read this as, and this would be the first option, as John seeking answers For his recent doubt that he has about Jesus. So some time has elapsed since he's baptized Jesus. And for all the reasons I just mentioned, he may be thinking, okay, things are not turning out like I expected. And he likely knew that the end of his life was getting closer. And so his question reflects this end of life grasp for certainty. He wants to double check. You you are the Messiah, right? Or... Another way to interpret this question would be to see this as John helping his disciples to see Jesus' true identity. As we've already seen, John clearly knows who Jesus is. And so perhaps this question is motivated not by his doubts, but by his concern for his own disciples. He knows that his life 
on this earth is drawing to a close, that he probably doesn't have much time left. He's fallen out of favor with King Herod. He likely knows, I could be dead soon. And what's going to happen to my disciples? <clears throat> I want to make sure that when I'm gone, and all of a sudden the, the, the increased persecution or the intensity of of, of pushback against my disciples' ministry ramps up. I want to make sure that they're solid and strong in their faith. I want to make sure that they are crystal clear from Jesus' own lips that he is the Messiah. I don't want them just depending on me because I won't be here anymore. And so he sends them to Jesus, perhaps knowing that the evidence that they would get from Jesus would strengthen their faith. Regardless of John's motivation, I think this is a good opportunity to step back for a minute and to recognize the benefit that we have today in having the New Testament. The benefit we have today in being able to look back on all of this, knowing how it turns out, knowing about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming return. We don't just have the Old Testament with all of its types and promises which were sometimes hard to understand. B.B. Warfield, one of the great theological giants of the 18th and early 1900s, wrote, the Old Testament is a richly furnished room, dimly lit. <laughs> I love that. The Old Testament is a richly furnished room, dimly lit. I think most of us can relate to a room, maybe in your home or Maybe a grandparent's home or a great aunt or uncle or you were growing up and they kind of had that one room where all the nice furniture was kept, right? Like where you don't take food or colored liquids in that room. And, and that room most of the time is kind of dimly lit. You can kind of see maybe some light cascading into that room from other rooms in the house. Or maybe when you walk by and maybe as a child you're warned like do not go in that room. Don't touch anything. Don't even go in there. That's where all the breakable things are could kind of see in the room it's like wow it's some nice furniture and nice chairs and tables and cabinets and then the company comes over or thanksgiving day happens and all of a sudden the room is bathed in light and where once you could only see shadows and forms now you can see in detail and for us who live on the other side of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, who live on the other side of having not just the Old, but now the New Testament. The light has been turned on. The expectations about the Messiah that were once shrouded in shadows are now, through Jesus' ministry, fully lighted. But the details as with John and his followers, don't always match our expectations. Sometimes the furniture in that dimly lit room that we think might be just a, a, a dark bookcase is actually a bright red china cabinet. And we deal with this today. We deal it when, with it when we suffer. We're forced to trust in the promises of God. We're forced to deal with our expectations about, about who God is and what he's like and the person and work of Jesus. If Jesus were truly God and if, if God is truly good, then why should I suffer? Why doesn't God just at the moment of conversion make 
sure that all of his believers experience bliss here on earth? Why don't we get everything we want? Why do sometimes our prayers seem to go unanswered? Why is it that sometimes the godliest people have the hardest life? Why is it that things are unfair so often? We deal with those kinds of questions when things happen in our own lives. We deal with those kinds of questions when things happen at a macro level. Just like the people in Jesus' day who were longing for Jesus to overthrow the Romans, to overthrow the wickedness, to purify the Jewish faith, and to establish a pure, eternal kingdom. We can see the wickedness of a world that's broken and fallen, and we can wonder, why is it that we don't have a truly Christian nation? Why is it that we don't truly have a, a pure people? Why do we still see sin at government levels and at individual levels and at global levels? So what does Jesus do in response to those kinds of questions? Notice verse 22, Jesus responds, and he doesn't scold them for asking this question. He doesn't say to them, well, your teacher John already knows who I am. Just go ask him. No. What does he say? Verse 22, he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus could have responded to their question very simply and very directly. Are you the Messiah? Jesus, yes. All he could have said, right? And it would have been true, and it would have ended the debate. But Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus draws attention to the miracles that he's done, which, not by accident, are things that the prophet Isaiah said would accompany the arrival of the Messiah. So that if... If John were to be asked, okay, what sorts of signs will accompany the arrival of the Messiah? He would say, well, the blind will receive their sight and the deaf will hear and lepers will be cleansed. These will all be signs of the arrival of the Messiah because Isaiah the prophet foretold that they would be signs of the coming of the Messiah. So Jesus essentially says to them, you know that evidence that Isaiah talked about that would accompany the Messiah? Just look around and see for yourself what's happening. Taste and see for yourself that I am the Messiah. In other words, the days of salvation which Isaiah had for, been foretelling are now here. I am the Messiah, even though Rome still occupied Israel. Jesus is the Messiah. Even though many of the signs that the religious leaders expected, all the things that they wanted to happen, the overthrow of Rome and their own, the establishment of their own nation, none of that was happening. Even though none of that was happening, Jesus is still the Messiah. Even though so many of the religious leaders in Judaism were hypocrites, Jesus 
is still the Messiah. Even though Jesus had not subdued all of his enemies, putting them all under his feet, he's still the Messiah. Even though the true people of God still faced oppression and suffering, Jesus was still the Messiah. Even though the days of his triumphant kingdom coming in all of its fullness had not yet arrived, Jesus was still the Messiah. You see, could it be that the reason that John and others were confused by Jesus, the reason that they were unsure if this was really the salvation they were expecting, was because the signs that they were expecting were signs that didn't just mark the, the arrival of the kingdom of God, but they also marked the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. So it's like if you're driving across the Great Plains and you're heading west and you begin to see the first signs of the Rocky Mountains. And from a distance, it looks just like a single mountain range, doesn't it? There's a mountain range. But the closer you get, you begin to see it's not just a single mountain range. It, it's a series of ranges. And the promises of God about his kingdom, about his arrival, function like that. There were promises all throughout the Old Testament about what the Messiah would do what he would be like, the work that he would accomplish, the kingdom that he would bring. And the people in, in the New Testament in Jesus' era, as in our era, have a tendency to look at those promises as a single mountain range and to think, okay, well, they, these promises will all come to fruition when Jesus finally arrives. And Jesus had finally arrived, but they looked around and they were still under Roman oppression. They looked around and people were still suffering. They looked around and Judaism was still corrupt in many ways. And they remembered the promises of God that his kingdom would be a kingdom of peace. That it would be an eternal kingdom. That it would be a kingdom where, where death and sin was no more. Were they right to expect God to fulfill those promises? Yes. But the problem was that they smashed those promises. They saw one mountain range. When some of those promises were the initial range of Christ's first coming, and other promises won't arrive in their fullness until Christ returns again. When all of those promises will come to fruition. The theological term for what they were doing... This is just bonus, maybe extra credit. It's called overrealized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. And to overrealize eschatology is to pull from the future mountain range, from the future coming of Jesus Christ, those promises, and to pull them into today and to expect those promises to be ours today as they will be when we see Jesus face to face in eternity. It's kind of like when you're, you know, eight, nine, ten years old and you you long for the day when you finally be able to get you you finally be able to drive a car. And you're like, oh I can't wait to finally be able to slide behind the, the wheel of the car and and to be able to take it out and be able to drive and all oh, the wonder and the freedom that, that will that will bring. And then you get like 15 and a half and you discover that your, your first step isn't actually to like have all of the fullness of driving, but you get part of the fullness of driving, right? You get, you get your permit where you can drive the car, yes, 
you're actually driving the car, you're actually in control of an automobile, but you've got to have a parent in the car, which means the music has to be turned down, right? And you can't drive between like midnight and 6 a.m. And it's all these other restrictions, right? Can you drive? Yes. Are you realizing the fulfillment of the promise of driving? Yes. But are you realizing in its complete fulfillment, in the fullness of that promise? No. And there are promises that were made about the arrival of the Messiah that have been fulfilled in the arrival of the Messiah. But then there are other promises that will reach their fulfillment when Jesus Christ returns. And we are not to over-realize, to pull those future promises into now and expect as though God should fulfill them right now. We can cling to them, yes. We can long for them, yes. We can look forward in hope to when they will be fulfilled. But some of those promises of God were, were not promised for right now. We can get in trouble when we begin to, to want those to happen now. An over-realized eschatology is at the root of so many dangers in the Christian life. For example, the prosperity gospel, which is like, if you trust in Christ, God should give you everything you want, right? You'll never be sick. You'll have everything you want. You have financial success, prosperity. Life should be easy, right? The prosperity co- gospel comes from an over-realized eschatology. It comes from expecting the things that God has promised in eternity to be ours now. To expect to have our best life right now rather than in eternity. For the Christian, our best life will be when Jesus returns and consummates the fullness of his kingdom. We're not promised our best life now. We're promised God's presence now. We're promised his help now. We're promised the help of the, the church right now. We're promised his grace and his comfort right now. But we're not promised an alleviation from suffering and sickness and trials and hurt and fear. See, an overrealized eschatology gets us into trouble when we encounter suffering or adversity in this life because we are tempted to think, okay, what did I do wrong? Or maybe I just don't have enough faith, or maybe I need to pray more. And then when that doesn't help, then we begin to question whether or not God is actually good or actually all powerful. Or we begin to question whether or not He exists at all. When the root of it is expecting God to to fulfill promises right now that he has made for eternity. Brothers and sisters, we have the benefit of the Old and New Testament, which show us both the promises that he has made, the promises that have been fulfilled, and teach us about the promises yet to come. The lights have been turned on. The room that is richly furnished is made bright. So that we can see that Jesus is the Messiah and we can see that the day that we truly long for is yet in the future. I think what Jesus does next is really interesting because from here Jesus uh, begins to now turn to the crowd and notice when the messengers had gone, verse 24, Jesus speaks to the crowd concerning John. He tells them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? 
And he gives them a series of kind of hypothetical questions. Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Well, no, because we know that John was bold. He was clear. I mean, he's in prison for his boldness. He, he wasn't wishy-washy. Verse 25, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, which is almost humorous if you remember John's chosen attire, right? He wore this wild uh, camel hair clothes and had a belt around his waist. You remember when we discussed him, we said he looked a little more, he, he resembled Duck Dynasty more than kind of an ivory tower intellectual or some preacher today. That's not it. They didn't go out to see a man dressed in fine clothing. They didn't go out to see a man in, in riches and luxury. Those people live in king's courts, Jesus said. Verse 26, but then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is saying to them, you didn't go out to see someone who was wishy-washy. You didn't go out to see someone who was dressed in fine clothes, who just wanted to tickle people's ears. You went out because you believe John was a prophet, and he is a prophet. But he's more than just a prophet. He's the one who was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he's done that work. He's prepared the way for the Messiah. He's accomplished his mission. Which means you are to believe in the one whom he has sent. And you're to believe in the work of the one he has sent. He tells them in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Like John is a great prophet. Yes, Jesus tells them. But there's a new work that's happening. It's a work that would happen through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. A new covenant that would be inaugurated in the blood of Jesus Christ. John served before that. He called people to repent, to trust in the promised deliverer that God would send. But that promised deliverer had arrived and soon he would surrender his life and he would give up his lifeblood for the establishment of a new kingdom for his people. And that new kingdom would be so much greater than the old covenant, than the old work. It would be so much greater that even those who are least in the new covenant, least in the kingdom of God are greater than John. Jesus wasn't saying that we're more important than our heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. He wasn't saying that they're not now a part of the kingdom. But Jesus is showing that even as great as John is, something greater has, has arrived in Jesus and through his work. I mean, when was the last time you stopped to consider the, the amazing gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That we don't bring bulls and goats and and birds into this place and we slaughter them. The fact that when you sin, you don't have to seek out a priest somewhere or a pastor and go confess to them. We can confess directly to God through the intercession of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have an incredible gift to live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. We can see Jesus for who he truly is. And yet the tragedy is many, even today, still miss him. Which is why I think Jesus would say in verse 31, to what then shall I compare this 
people or this generation, what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says, something greater than John has arrived. The kingdom of God has arrived. The Messiah has arrived. And yet, what what shall I say about this generation? What shall I say about these people? And when, in the Bible, when Jesus talks about this generation, he's not just talking about that specific like generation, like 20 to 40-year-olds or 40 to 60-year-olds. He's talking about the people of that time, of that age, which also includes us, because we live in that age, and Jesus refers to as this age. He says, what shall I compare to this generation? They're like children who are calling out to one another, who hear a song, the song of the gospel, the truth of the good news of great joy, and yet they fail to dance. They're like those who hear a a funeral dirge. They hear the sad news of sin and death, and yet they fail to repent. And instead, just as you found ways to explain away John the Baptist, you will find ways to explain away the promised Messiah. I think it's an indictment against the people for their lack of faith, for their lack of trust in who Jesus was, for connecting the dots. Which brings us back to our main point, which is that the Messiah has arrived. He, his coming fulfilled some of the promises of God. He's inaugurated a kingdom. And we who repent and believe are now a part of that kingdom. But there are more promises. There are promises of an eternal nature. And we need to be so careful that we don't expect God to keep promises in this life that he's made for the life to come. And when our expectations are not met, with what we expect Jesus to do for us or in us or around us in the world. In those moments, we need to be reminded immediately that there is coming a day when every promise will be fulfilled, when everything will be put right, when there will be no more sadness or sorrow or fear or death or anxiety. And in that day, we will see him clearly promised Messiah that John foretold about, that arrived to inaugurate a new kingdom, that will return, and he will return with the the thresh and separate the wheat from the chaff. He will have the winnowing fork in his hand. And all who trust in him will enter his eternal kingdom for all eternity. pray with me.